We are looking at Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians in these weeks, and our focus last week was on Paul's admonition to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it probably goes without saying, but Paul is just simply reminding us in that text that the spiritual life Really, the observed and intentional life, irrespective of when we live it, is hard work. But it's also about resting in the work of what God is doing in and among us and allowing ourselves to be held. And chapter 3, I think, is a picture of how this is true in Paul's life and also how it's true in the lives of the Philippians. He gives us a a window into his own journey of working at living the spiritual life, of working to make himself available to God's work in him. And what Paul gives us here is what he starts to give us in chapter 2. It's a picture of how the spiritual life is an interplay between pressing on and standing firm. Those are the two aspects of this journey that involve on the one hand, a constant move forever forward, further up and further in as C.S. Lewis would say, but also a dedication to planting our feet firmly and rooting ourselves in the love of God and staying put, if you will, in that reality. And I'm going to read all of chapter three today, and there are probably three or four sermons in this chapter. I'll only preach one of them. And so you may end up hearing things that I don't deal with in this text. For example, right off the bat, Paul says, look out for the dogs. It's very clear to me that Paul was not a part of a culture where that had bumper stickers that said dog is God spelled backwards. Uh, <laughs> you need to know that I don't think you need to look out for the dogs, in fact, or unless you're looking out for them in the way we look out for them as as guide dog puppy raisers. So Adrian pointed out this glaring, horrible, heretical thing uh, in Paul's words at the first, so I thought I needed to mention that. And uh, that way you won't turn off right at the beginning of the text. But listen for Paul's passion in this. That's the most important thing. As he reflects on his own story, as he encourages the Philippians to live that story of of an intentional life of being rooted and grounded in the, the love of God and pressing on to give witness to that in our world. He begins with one of those finally passages. There are two of them in this book, one in chapter three and one in chapter four. And he issues the, what follows the finally is finally rejoice in the Lord. In other words, relax into the embrace of Jesus. So let's look at all of Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone has 
else has reason for to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and I now tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, help us to rest in you and receive the energy that allows us to press on. Help us to find that peace and that joy that comes through that rest and the peace and the joy that also grow out of being a part of your work in the world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About the time I was in seminary, one of the big blockbusting bestseller self-help books was by a psychiatrist by the name of M. Scott Peck. It was called The Road Less Traveled. And it was a book that I became familiar with after I graduated from seminary. And it's the first sentence of that book that is really the reason that what he's writing about, this road less traveled, this invitation to a considered life, to a spiritual life, it's the reason why the road is less traveled, 
Because in the first sentence of the book, he says just simply this, life is difficult. He states a truism that we all know, but that we spend much of our life trying to deny in order to find an easier road than the life that we're currently living. We shouldn't need to be reminded of this, but we want life to be easy. And there is a kind of refreshing and liberating news in hearing that it isn't, and it never will be easy. Because life is actually pretty hard and pretty harsh. And this presents us with a choice, and it's the choice that Peck is writing about. It's really the choice that Jesus is presenting to us as well, is that we can either embrace the fact of suffering and work through it, which is what Peck calls the road less traveled, or we can look for ways to mask and avoid the pain. We can look to controlled substances, or behaviors that give us temporary relief, or sometimes even religion with easy answers to hard questions. They're all a way of kind of masking the truth that life is difficult or finding temporary relief from it. And Peck obviously was not the first to work with this question and to remind us of the need to face into the world's harshness. It's not far from Paul's imagination either, as he writes to the Philippians. It's not far from Jesus' reminder, in the world, you will have trouble. But Paul points to the truth about God that mitigates and overcomes the harshness. And Jesus says, I have overcome the world. While Paul says God is with you and in you, and at work in you as you face into the suffering that accompanies your life in this world. And he starts with that admonition, finally. The most important thing you need to hear from me is this. Rejoice in the Lord. Rest in, be at peace in the love of God in Christ, and so stay rooted. Stand firm. But he's also saying, watch out. He's saying, beware. And when he mentions that phrase, watch out for the dogs, beware of the dogs, beware of the workers of evil, those who mutilate the flesh, he's basically talking about those who use religion to mask the reality of the hard life or the difficult life. Those who try to convince you, Paul is saying, beware of those who try to convince you that religious practice or a set of rules is more important than relationship with the living God. And he's speaking specifically of those in his day that were inviting Gentile Christians to think about how they needed to adopt traditional Judaistic practices in order to be true Christians. It was a big part of what he was trying to get across in his ministry, especially to Gentiles, but also to Jews. Draw the line in the right place. Don't make circumcision the point. It's not the point. And so he speaks of it as mutilation in this context, 
to those Gentiles who were having to live in the world where they were being told that they were not insiders because they were not circumcised. He was speaking to Gentile Christians about the unnecessary requirement of having to meet all of the Jewish practices in order to be followers of Jesus. And essentially, Paul says following Jesus is about more than adopting and perfecting a set of religious practices. And we as Christians could benefit from putting ourselves in those categories of dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh in that we require the rules to be followed before we invite people to consider Jesus. So you see, this is something that religion does. It tries to build an inside in order to make itself feel good. It creates an outside. And that's what Paul is addressing. And Paul says, I know this from personal experience because I've kept all the rules. And I'm here to tell you that it's not worth a whole lot to just keep the rules. He says essentially to the Philippians, if anybody has achieved perfection, in keeping the rules, it's me. And then he gives his resume. That whole list of things that, that prove him to be one who, as to righteousness under the law, is perfect. If anyone, he says, has a reason to boast in that kind of achievement, I do. There's not a religious skill that I have not perfected. But relationship with the one who is at the core of it all, I now know to be the most important thing. So I could lose everything and be at peace because I would still be in the grip of God in Jesus Christ because of his grace. And as the Commercials say on TV, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Being in that grip for Paul is not a static place. It's not a place that you arrive and rest and then do nothing else. It's about continual forward movement. It's about continual tapping into that grace in order to reflect it somehow in our world. It's about pressing on. It's an ever-growing relationship that is transforming us into the image of Christ, he says. A relationship that is best described as an interplay between those two phrases that he uses in this letter. Standing firm and pressing on. And this interplay is nothing new. Paul didn't come up with it. It's been described by so many in the Judeo-Christian tradition and really in other spiritual traditions as well, because it's talking about relationship being primary. And as with all relationship, relationship with God is the same in that it is about always being about this chemistry of standing firm and pressing on, of the humility of resting in God's love 
and the confidence of moving out empowered by that love, of the mystery of not knowing where we're going and the certainty of knowing who is out in front of us. It takes us back as far to the first psalm if you really want to know where that psalmist is describing what righteousness is all about and likens righteousness to be the tree that's planted by streams of water. That in order to be happy, we have to be like that tree. Forever moving forward is what happiness is, the kind of happiness that the psalmist is talking about. And in order to do that, in order to achieve that growth and that transformation, in order to be available to God's work in us, we have to be that tree planted by the streams of water and so bearing fruit and producing seed and fostering life. Rooted and grounded in love is the way Paul talks about it. But actively moving forward in the work of reflecting that love in the world. And so I want to take us back to our Madrona tree from last week. Think about that tree planted in less than hospitable conditions, seemingly less than hospitable conditions, rooted and grounded in a place that doesn't seem like it's going to make room for anything but the Douglas firs that surround it. And think about it finding light nevertheless and bending and contorting itself and stretching toward that light, rooted but stretching toward the light in what appears to be a place that it should not be at all. Working out our salvation is something that only happens because God is at work in us. It's that work of standing firm in that truth and pressing on toward a deeper understanding of it. It's about being rooted and grounded in the love of the God who is transforming the bodies of our humiliation and conforming them to the body of God's glory. It's becoming like Jesus, in other words. And none of us are there yet. And so to quote Paul in another place, I end with this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Equip us, O oh God, by your spirit to relax and to strive, to strive because we know ourselves to be held and because we know that you are out in front leading us. So help us to explore what you are calling us to and help us to rest as you remind us of all that you have done. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.